All right. So, continuing on from last week, which was a continuation from the beginning, uh, the beginning of December, my initial Sunday school class on December 3rd, I crammed too much. Uh, so what I did is revised it, went back, split it into two. So we'll be looking at the second half of my previous lesson from the beginning of, uh, of December. Because there was a lot of information in there and it was unnecessary uh, to put that much really thought and presentation into one uh, class. So uh, last week we looked at um, just the basics of, uh, why, why am I drawing a blank of what I taught last week? Uh, man, excuse me, man, uh, the mind of man, the spirit of man, and just the basic uh, observations that man can come to because of his rational mind, given what God has uh, given to us in nature. Man, if I'm struggling to figure out what I did last week, I can't imagine what everyone else is feeling. Yes, and comparisons with the animal kingdom. I guess my brain's cold, too. Um, so I digress. Well, this week we'll be looking at uh, theism, so more of a, a background of God. So last week we started with man because of who we are, and we can't know God, we can't know any of his attributes or any of his creation unless we have the endowments and the attributes that we have, that of rationality and reason. So that's why we started with man, and this week we're going to be looking at, um, at theism. So what is theism? What's the definition? And uh, I was just thinking about this as I was walking in. The systematic theology we're using is uh, Henry Theison. So theism is not the study of Henry Theison, but uh, it's the study of God, theism. It's just the background knowledge of God. So Webster's Dictionary defines it as this. It's the belief in the existence of God or God specifically. Belief in the existence of one God viewed as the creative source of the human race in the world who transcends yet is imminent in the world. And that's what's important to remind ourselves about God is he's transcendent, so he's above time and space. Time and space do not confound and confine God, yet he's also imminent. We can also see clearly from Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that we can come to a personal knowledge of God through creation, but we can come to an intimate spiritual knowledge of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, uh, in the systematic theology that we're using as a template, uh, this week we're looking at uh, theism, like I said. So, I wrote it up here on the board, and uh, Henry Theism breaks it down really two ways. And I'm going to take a slight divergence from the first time I presented it, uh, and even how he presents it from a theistic viewpoint. So, the knowledge of God. So, how he breaks it down is the first and second chapter... He has theism, so the vast majority of people, as we discussed in the world, and all of human history, are theists. We see a commonality from whenever human civilization began, whatever timeline you use, even from uh, the evolutionary standpoint or the uh, classic orthodox standpoint, is every culture, one way or another, has had a religious underpinning. Whether it be the Aztecs sacrificing humans they were sacrificing it to their sun gods, someone greater than them. All the European cultures, all the Asiatic, African, South American cultures. All of them had 
an underpinning, a commonality, is that they believed in something greater. Now, Theosin, he really divides it up into two categories. So, the chapter we're looking at today is theism, and then he divides it then, uh, not antheism, atheism. Atheism and agnosticism. Atheism is a belief that there isn't a God. Agnostics believe that you can't prove or come to a knowledge. There's not enough evidence to believe that God exists or to prove that God exists. Now, the reason I disagree with the way he sets it up is because I still think even the word of God tells us is that even the atheist person still believes in something greater. And let me explain that. The agnostic or the atheist has to believe in a power greater than themselves. They intrinsically have to. They know that they did not create themselves. They believe that there has to be some higher power. And let me explain that. This week, I, uh, in my study, I, I googled, how can something come from nothing? And I got on this website called SciTech Daily on the origins of the universe. Now, most of it was over my head because they're throwing out words and verbiage and mathematics that, quite frankly, I can't understand. And every single one of us in here probably cannot understand. These people are brilliant people. But the author delves into the possibilities of differing aspects of the creation of the known universe. And bear with me here for a second. He goes on about how before time began, these subatomic particles and the vacuum of space, yada, yada, basically combusted into the Big Bang, and then that's how we get where we are today. And he was going into one one trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. There was matter, and then it blew up into space. But when you think about it, they intrinsically still do not believe that something comes from nothing. There is a power higher than the atheist or the agnostic. So what I did is, in my notes, is every person is a theist of one sort or another. Richard Dawkins, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Bill and I, the science guy, all of them will classify themselves either as agnostic or atheist. But I would take the position that at the end of the day, they're theists. Yes, they don't believe in the God that we believe. They don't believe in the God that the Muslims or the Jews or the Hindus believe in. Yet, they still intrinsically believe in a higher power because they know that they did not create themselves. So, make a long story short, as I was reading this article, this guy was explaining, he came to a conclusion that something almost comes from nothing. Now, that's idiotic. If you have almost nothing, it's still a something. It's not possible. Something cannot come from nothing. So in the back of their mind, they still know that there had to have been some creative process, some power outside of them in control of the universe and of time and space. So he never came to a conclusion. He never gave me a decisive answer as to where the universe came from. He just hypothesized it was the Big Bang but yet they still have trouble explaining what happened or what was there before the Big Bang. Now, interestingly enough, 
At the bottom of this page, it had an open comment section. And I found this quote, or this, uh, this comment by this guy, kind of fascinating. He says this. He says, I think it would be far more honest approach to leave the question of origins aside and focus on what the evidence says. Science demands that honesty. And what's striking is he's telling all of these scientists, his basic conclusion is, as we as humans need to leave aside or throw off the questions of our origins. Where did we come from? Now, that's at least an honest comment. Well, what's so striking about that is that man's nature, our curiosity, what we have been designed, our basic imprint is to desire to find out what that higher power is. Again, it goes back to Romans chapter 1, that God has made it evident to all man, woman, and child that he exists, that some higher power exists. These scientists, the professors, the governments, they spend billions of dollars every single year. Billions of dollars, countless hours, trying to figure out their origins, where they came from. And that's why I believe that there's no atheists or agnostics at the end of the day. They all know that they had to have come from something greater. Whether it was from time and chance or their theories of evolution or however it came about, their evolutionary process is that process or that power that is greater than them. That's their God. Evolution. Their God is time and, and chance and space. That is the force, the creative power that is greater than them. Now, I'm sure they would probably disagree with that. They would still say that they're atheists or agnostic. But you can see it deep down in their yearning to understand and to find out where they came from. Uh, we, of course, know where we came from. We have to read John chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, 11, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, Genesis chapter 1. We know our basic presupposition is, is that in the beginning, God. In the beginning of time... God was already there, pre-existent from time began, eternal. He's the eternal force. He's the eternal power. Our God is the God that's in the heavens. But the God of the atheist, the agnostic, is on paper. It's this evolutionary force. So that's why I say man is not truly an atheist. They believe in something greater. And Brother Rick, he pointed out the verse uh, last week. I think it was last week. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, which I think is a, is a wonderful verse. Solomon presumably says this, He has made everything appropriate in its time. He also has set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. So we kind of see this dual thing here is God and every man, woman, and child again has put eternity in our hearts. We have this yearning desire to understand that which is greater than us. But then also, I think it's interesting at the end of this verse, it says, so that no man will not, or excuse me, no man will find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. There's kind of this thing that no matter how hard the scientists, the philosophers, the thinkers of this age, the scholars, the the professors, no matter how hard they think, no matter what they do, they're never going to come to a satisfactory answer. It's an interesting concept. On the one hand, 
again, they reject the idea of God, but their very works and their very practices of what they do are proof to me, and I think to the average person, of the existence of God. It's because they want to find out what that higher power is. And again, it, I think goes back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 2, and 3, Paul is telling the Corinthians that the wisdom of this world is confounded by God. It's confounded by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Most intelligent people in the world cannot come to the basic conclusion of the gospel message of Jesus Christ, of God, the creator of the universe. And it's just fascinating to think about. It never changes from the Garden of Eden all the way until now. Man in the hardness of his heart is looking past the simplest explanation and answer of all things, that of God, to grander and greater ways to explain their creation. It's the story of man. It's taking the natural gifts of God, that of our reason, creation, and it's perverting them. I mean, look what we do in the same instance, not only with science... God has gifted mankind with science, all the medical experiments, all the things that we're able to do, heat. What a great invention of the 19th, 20th, 21st century. We can stay here when it's zero degrees outside. But yet we pervert everything. We've perverted marriage. We've perverted sexualization. We as humankinds have perverted science to blaspheme God and try to destroy God. And I like Hebrews 11 verse 3. Why do we know? How do we know that God exists? By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Now, there is an active element of faith, of course. If we believe that God's word is God's word, it's infallible, it's perfect in its original language, we understand where where the worlds came from at the word of God. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's how we understand. But in the same line is, I had a conversation with uh, an acquaintance of mine. He's an agnostic, atheist individual. And he denied that he uses faith. I said, every person uses faith. If you didn't use faith, then you wouldn't drive across the bridge. Yes, you know the bridge is standing, but you don't necessarily understand how the mathematics of the bridge work. You wouldn't get on an airplane, although the more I see, the less likely I want to get on an airplane now. But nonetheless, we do so much stuff. He does so much stuff. He walks into a restaurant. He, in essence, by faith, is believing that the rafters and the roof of the restaurant are not going to collapse on him. He has to put faith in the engineer and the builder who built the building. So faith is completely logical for us and for humankind. We have to have faith in order to operate in this world. So that's kind of just my rationale of why I think every single person, no matter where they are in the world, in one way or another, is a theist at heart. Why? Because God's word tells us, and man is continually trying to search for the power that is greater than him. 
So that's really the first point that Theosin makes in his commentaries. That's the first belief of theism, that there is something greater. There's a supernatural power. That every single man, woman, and child around the world is in agreement about. Whether they want to admit it or not, is that there is a higher power. So he has uh, three more, and we'll continue down those. But I know I threw a lot of information, but does anyone have any comments or questions before I continue? Yeah, I mean, I think it could potentially be a difference of accountability. Meaning, like, Bill Nye, the science guy, still believes in gravity. Like, he still believes, like, in natural law. I mean, we, every single person, generally speaking, knows that it's wrong to throw a baby over a cliff. Generally speaking. You know. Correct. Correct. But, I mean, if, if you took Bill Gates' daughter or Bill and I, the science guy, daughter, and threw her off a cliff, do you think he'd have a problem with it? Yeah, he, he, he would, because every single person intrinsically knows that there's something wrong. So yeah, there is degrees of, to what you're saying, like of accountability, but, yeah. Yes, Dad. He, I'm sorry, he wouldn't what? Uh-huh. So he wouldn't? Bl- okay. Yeah, maybe I need to clarify that by basically saying, I'm not necessarily saying that they believe that there's a higher power. But from a biblical Christianity standpoint, we see what they're doing 
understanding from God's word that they are seeking a higher power. So, yeah, let me, let me clarify that. I may not have been clear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's no satisfaction. I mean, there's uh, something over in Switzerland and France called CERN. It's a particle accelerator where all these scientists are basically trying to slam atoms together to create a black hole to recreate the Big Bang. They would certainly say that they're not theist in any standpoint, but they're trying to figure out that power that's greater than them, that God of theirs. Yes, Pap. Very good, very good. Anyone have anything else to add? And I'm just just trying to be thought provoking here. It it's not easy stuff, and I I don't I don't get a lot of it, but it's it's good thought provoking stuff because we deal with these people, we deal with the unbeliever in the real world. As we get more secular in our country, we're going to be dealing more and more in our work, especially at school, our, our associates and our acquaintances, and be able to kind of grasp what they believe is, I think, key to be able to properly share the Word of God with them. Yes, Rick. Very good. Anything else? All right, well, let's continue on. So, again, I said Theuson has uh, four points. So there's just a a general knowledge of something greater. And, again, we, I think, came to the conclusion that the atheist agnostic does belong in there, even though they would certainly uh, be appalled of being put in that camp. Uh, the second one is just a belief in one God. So basic um, pantheism, you know, the existence of God is in a lot of stuff that's around us. Um, basic monotheism, uh, deism, which we probably don't, and Uncle Ray went over this two, two, three weeks ago. But deism, we probably don't see a whole lot. It's probably definitely more popular with like the founding fathers and the and the enlightened individuals. Um, and then number three is, and I, let me put this: this is more of a 
impersonal. God, so you don't get much interaction with them. Is it impersonal or impersonal? I think it's impersonal. M, yeah. Again, not the world's greatest speller. Uh, Number three, of course, is uh, a more personal God. So as, as we get down, this is personal God. So Jews, Muslims, say like Hindus, probably fall in there with their plurality of gods. But I think with Hinduism, it all goes back to one chief God who has millions of different manifestations. And then number four, obviously there's only one right one on this list. And number four is the true God, the God that we believe in. This is the God of the Bible, the triune God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Of course, the one we believe in. This is the classic... Roman Catholic, I'd even say Eastern Orthodox, Protestant view. With the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox, we certainly share, really, the uh, basic underpinnings of God. They're Orthodox, they're true, and their understandings of the triune God. But let me read the Westminster Catechism, Westminster Shorter Catechism, their explanation of God, which I think is sufficient. God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That is the true God that we believe in. And of course, the difference between three and four is these groups would obviously deny the Trinity, the, the, uh, three, uh, the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, they still believe in a personal God, but it's still a false God. So those are basically the four main views of Theism. I think that covers all of mankind. And you could probably put in here too, up here you could probably put Buddhists, all the other Eastern religions, maybe down here, the religions of the uh, Native Americans and other uh, indigenous people groups. But all human cultures fit into those four categories. Yet only one, the last one, is the true and personal knowledge of God. In Jesus Christ. So uh, before I continue on, anyone have any um, comments or questions? All right. So again, just the four overviews or categories of uh, theism. So now we're going to kind of get into how do we defend theism? How do we defend God? That kind of sounds idiotic. But nonetheless, I think as Christians, as believers we're still called to give a defense for theism, to give a defense for the reasons that we believe. If someone asks us, well, why are you there and not there? We should be able to give a rational argument as to why we believe what we believe. And I think we see that countless times with the Apostle Paul and his different uh, evangelical missions throughout the known world. So again, uh, just going along with Theus in here, I gave a handout uh, early December. I don't know if anyone has that still. Um, I didn't bring any extra copies, but 
if you want one. I think it's very good. Kind of just gives you a brief overview of just the general categories of different ways of apologetics. How can we defend what we believe? So the first one that really Theosin regards is that God is intuitive to our nature. As we discussed before, so going just about 10 minutes ago and even last week, our conscience, our rationality, observes the created order and understands that God exists. And again, there's no perfect way for us to be able to defend theism or, or, or our faith necessarily because some may work better with others. So if you're going to use any of these, make it malleable. Maybe you go back and forth, but I'm just giving you general categories here. So God is intuitive in our nature. Let me read this quote, uh, or let me read this verse, Romans 1.19, which we're familiar with. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So basically what this is saying is that you don't really even argue whether God exists or not. Because the person understands intrinsically, again, that there is a higher power. Now that's difficult. Like, Becky, take your father for example. He would sit there, or any atheist, they would sit there and tell you that God doesn't exist. But how do you prove to someone that God exists when he already exists? Kind of think of a a loose analogy here. Two plus two equals four. Well, how do you sit there and argue with someone who says that two plus two doesn't equal four? What do you do? I mean, you could put it on the paper. You could say two plus two equals four. But if they sit there and say, well, no, it doesn't, are you responsible to continue to say, well, yes, it does? How do you possibly argue with someone about that? So the first argument is is that God is intuitive to our nature. Now, there are some solutions to this. What are ways that we can still present our faith with someone who's hostile and open to it? Um, Stephen Nichols, uh, Ligonier, I think he's the president of Ligonier or teaching fellow of Ligonier, but he basically said for this one, for if you believe that the, the knowledge of God is intuitive, maybe to share your testimony with that person. Share your testimony. Share how you came to faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And maybe even memorize uh, some Bible verses. So that's really the first view is that you really can't argue with anyone. You really can't argue yes or no. Because it's the hardness of their hearts. They're not going to believe. Uh, I think it was, what, 10 years ago where Ken Ham argued with uh, or debated Bill Nye, the science guy? Kind of hard to believe that was 10 years ago. But, I mean, the debate was an hour and a half long. And it was a really good debate. But at the end of the day, was Bill Nye, the science guy, was his mind changed? It wasn't. I think Ken Ham was in the right for properly defending the faith, the existence of God in creation, but Ken, or Bill and I, the science guy's heart is hard. But it's still our job to be able to share the gospel and the reasons we believe. Now, the second one is the existence of God is assumed by the scriptures. Excuse me. The existence of God is assumed by the scriptures. Now, this is called the uh, presuppositional standpoint. And uh, it was really... I wouldn't say invented, but really developed in this century by a uh, theologian at uh, Westminster Theological Seminary, uh, Cornelius Van Til. 
And uh, there's a big debate whether this is the proper way to defend theism, to defend the faith. But let me just give it to you so you can decide. Again, like I said, the existence of God is assumed by the scriptures. It's presupposed. It starts with that presupposition of all knowledge. Van Til says the only proof of the Christian position is that unless or is that its truth is presupposed, meaning there is no possibility of proving anything at all. So you presuppose that the truth of Christianity is the truth, and you proclaim it. That's presuppositionalism. Again, to summarize it, is that the only truth known to man, the only truth is the God of the Bible, is the God of Christianity. So you don't start with anything else. You go right to the Bible to defend your faith. And as we'll see here, that differs with classic apologetics, who says every person has rationality. I'll get there eventually. But basically, you presuppose. You don't even argue about anything else. You argue from the Bible. If someone doesn't believe in the existence of God, take them to Romans chapter 1. Take them to Acts 17, Acts 14. Now, I would say there's shortcomings with all of these. I don't think there's any perfect system, but this one's good. Again, what do we believe is that the Holy Spirit is the only one that's able to save. What does Hebrews 4.12 say? For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the divisions of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So I give Van Til and the presuppositionalist credit as they're taking them to the word of God, We present the word of God to the unbeliever, to the person who doesn't believe in God, and then let the word of God speak for itself. Let the Holy Spirit move. Yep. Correct. Yep. Yeah. I mean, think of all the uh, people, Acts 17, when Paul presented at the Oropagus, he did, in effect, did use the word of God, and it said... Some of them scoffed at him, saying he was crazy. It said others believed. So, it's again, it's not going to work with every single person, but it's not necessarily our job to save every person, but we're supposed to share the word of God with those around us. Now, again, this is more of, uh, that's the presuppositional position. This is more of the classic apologetics, so more of like what's called Aristotelian logic. So by using the faculties, again, as they use language from last week, the endowments, the rationality, the brain that we have been given, we can then start from the building blocks at the bottom and then work our way up. So the classic apologists would not necessarily say that you start with the Bible. Maybe you start with basic truth, meaning 2 plus 2 equals 4. Can we at least agree, Mr. Atheist, Mr. Agnostic, Mr. Whomever, that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And that's kind of the view of classic apologetics, is that we can use basic truth as building blocks to eventually get to the Word of God. And there has been big debates the last 50 years. I mean, R.C. Sproul and guys like John Gerstner were classic apologists. Through and through. They, sold, they, they rejected presuppositionalism ardently. They did not believe in presuppositionalism. So even in reformed circles, if you want to use that term loosely, 
is there's not an agreement of the best way to go about uh, defending the faith necessarily. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Let, let me repeat that. R.C. Sproul and his mentor, John Gerstner, and others basically rejected presuppositionalism. And correct. You start with basic facts, let's say, like of humanity. So, again, just to keep it. Sure. No, no, you're fine. No, and I understand. Oh, I, I certainly understand. And again, I, there's no perfect way of going about presenting the evidence for what we believe in. And to your point. I, I think presuppositionalism, or starting with the Word of God, is very valu- is valuable for a lot of reasons and a lot of purposes and a lot of people. But let me just say, like for example, like with Ken Ham's debate with Bill Nye, the Science Guy, is if Ken Ham goes out there and just opens up the Bible and say this is God's Word, and then proceeds just to debate from God's Word, yes. There is an element of faith in there. The Holy Spirit is able to move and change the mind of Bill Nye, the science guy, right then and there. But from an argument of maybe R.C. Sproul's position is that there is agreements that we have with Bill Nye, the science guy. Maybe we start out with 2 plus 2 equals 4. Yes, we have basic truth. Bill, is there gravity? Yes, we believe in gravity. So from a classic standpoint, that's more of... The rationale is that we all have logic and we can basically have a coherent argument with an academic or something or someone who basically rejects the Bible. We can at least come to basic conclusions. And again, it takes a long time to go about that. Yep. 
I hear you. I mean, I, I, and I think we'll have to be done here pretty soon, but I watched videos this week, people defending the presuppositional position, the classic apologetics position, and, I mean, I'm sitting up here trying to present it to you all in a coherent and cogent manner, so it, it's certainly difficult, even for me, to be able to ingest it and so inarticulately understand it and then present it in a in a in a way that makes sense for everyone. And it is very difficult. I I'm an average I'm a B student, all right? I'm a B student and it's not easy to Yeah. No, I I I'm I'm not taking insults or anything, but this is good. This is good. Tammy Certainly, and they would all tell you that this is not an excuse to throw out the Bible. They just don't start necessarily from the Bible. Oh, yeah, yep. Well, the classic apologetics has like five, five or six different arguments. Um, I, yeah, yep, yes. No, I, 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 I thank you for that. I, I thank you for that. I, I very much enjoy the discussion because sometimes, like, you know, if you present a Sunday school class and no one's doing anything, you're like, well, am I, am I doing a sufficient job? And at least if people are asking questions, then you're at least thinking about it. So I, I very much appreciate that. <laughs> Harriet. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Amen. Yep. Amen to that. <laughs> exactly. The Holy Spirit. Oh. Good point. And she's the expert, by the way. She teaches it. So don't ask me questions. Ask her. (laughs) Yes, last one. Amen. Yep. All right. Well, that's it. And it's not my fault we went over. (laughs) All right. I'll see you next week.